This is Anxiously with Amy and Lisa. Now here are your hosts, Amy and Lisa. Hi, I'm Lisa. And I'm Amy. And this is Anxiously, the podcast where we talk about all things big and small that make us feel anxious. So Lisa, how are you doing? I'm okay. I had this incredible interaction with Hudson, my seven-year-old, the other day. It blew my mind, to be honest. So I got some bad news, and I learned that a friend from high school had passed away, and um, Hudson walked in on me crying, and it clearly freaked him out. And then at bedtime that night, when I was putting him down to sleep, he said to me, Mama, are you more afraid of dying or of other people dying? And... You know, I, I was just like, wow, a seven-year-old, that's a big question. But it really, it made me start thinking about the big question of death. And I was able to answer him and say, I, I am more afraid of the people I love dying. That is definitely much more terrifying to me. That is so fascinating. Yeah, it was a really remarkable question to get from my child. That gets at the heart of all the fears. And I know you and I have talked about this before. I really, really struggle with the fear of my parents dying, of course. I mean, I can't even say it. I know. <laughs> I get really kind of kooky about it. For instance, a few years ago, it was actually on New Year's Eve, I couldn't reach my parents. I was calling and calling and calling. My dad had actually had like a very minor health thing earlier, and I became convinced he was in the hospital. Well, first dead, and if not dead, in the hospital. So I literally <laughs> called a hospital in Queens to ask if he, <laughs> if he was there. He was not. It turned out he and my mom were at a New Year's Eve party. You know, just having fun, enjoying life. Good for them. <laughs> living every moment to the fullest. And their daughter is hysterical, assuming that they've died. Um, so it was... <laughs> It was a very illustrative experience when, you know, I think about my loved ones dying. I just go into panic mode. I'm exactly the same. I mean, it got to the point where my mom had to start texting me before she went in to go see a movie because if I called her and she didn't answer the phone, I would lose my mind and immediately yeah. start thinking the most catastrophic thoughts. So I totally get <laughs> I it. I love that. I love that. <laughs> I also managed to convince my husband, who is far less anxious than I am, we couldn't reach his parents once and I convinced him that his parents had died. <laughs> and his parents finally called us and they were like, oh, our phone was off. Like, what? What? So it's just, yeah, it's, it's, so death is obviously the big fear of everyone. I mean, we're right. not unique in, in living in terror of it, but why do we find it so hard to cope with even thinking about it? I don't know. And everybody dies. <laughs> <laughs> I know that totally, totally. I don't like hearing you. that. <laughs> but I think that there was a time in the course of civilization when death was very much integrated into the way of life. And I don't know, something about the about modern life has just sort of excised death from the natural rhythm. Death has really been like sort of swept away and curtained off. And I think we think it's for the best. Like it's kind of, we think it's 
going to make us feel better, but it might have had the opposite effect because it's something that's been so sublimated. Yeah. It's like, I don't, I don't want to face it more, but <laughs> I guess as we do get older though, it's probably increasingly going to be something to confront. Yeah. And contend with. Gosh, even saying that is making me <laughs> break out in hives. <laughs> I feel my stomach turning in knots. There was a time when society was more communal and I don't know, everything's so much more atomized now. I feel like death is one more symptom of the loneliness Mm. of the modern condition. (laughs) so sad. We don't live with our parents and our grandparents so much anymore. Certain communities do, of course. but Our tradition, like Jewish ritual mourning, it is very much about the community sitting shiva, you know, you have people over. Right. Um, and there's a script that walks mm-hmm. you through every step of the mourning process, which I think must be a real gift. Yeah, for sure. You know what to do. You know, yeah. like day one, you do this, seven days of more of intense mourning. Then there's a month of kind of slightly less intense mourning. So it, it is interesting to think back on kind of the more ancient rituals that maybe were helpful in helping people think about death and Nowadays in our a-religious world, people are less in touch with that. Right. Well, luckily, we have a wonderful guest to shed some light and insight on the subject of death and mourning. Sheikh Fayez Jafar is a graduate of the prestigious seminary of Karbala, Iraq, a research scholar for the Islamic Center at New York University, an associate chaplain for the Center of Global and Spiritual Life at NYU, and an adjunct assistant professor of public service of NYU's Robert F. Wagner Graduate School of Public Service. He is currently pursuing his doctorate in education at NYU and is a prominent writer, speaker, and faith leader. And here's our conversation with Sheikh Fayez Jaffer. We are so excited to welcome Sheikh Fayez Jaffer to speak with us about the subjects of death and mourning. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Lisa and I are both Jewish, and Jewish tradition has very prescriptive rules for mourning, which I think is actually very helpful. You know, we bury our dead quickly. We have the Shiva. And Muslim tradition, I don't know a lot about it, but I believe there are a lot of similarities there. So I'd love to learn more about what that mourning process looks like. The rituals that are performed, many of them are, of course, religious rituals. And the others would be things that are often done culturally, oftentimes in order to help the family of the deceased grieve and go through that process and so on. As for the obligations or the, or the legal rituals that often take place soon after someone has passed something, unfortunately, consistently been seeing over the last year. But nonetheless, there is also a means or a hope to expedite the burial for numerous different reasons. Prior to that, there is like a washing of the body that takes place that we often perform um, or that is a religious obligation, as well as a shrouding of the body. And there are specific rituals that are performed at each one of these stages. And then there's the actual burial process in and of itself, the lowering of the body into the grave. Then the idea or the hope is that it's done within the first day after the passing, and then hopefully, you know, as early as possible. Soon thereafter, there would be a whole host of other rituals, some extra prayers, recitation of the Quran, with the hope that the blessings of that recitation would be received by the deceased and so on. And of course, within Islamic theology and, and tradition, 
there's a belief that, you know, we don't live for this world. We live for a world beyond this one. So we see it kind of as a stage or the virtually an opportunity for the individual, for the deceased now to take their next journey in life, which is in terms of seeking closeness to God. So we call the deceased marhum in the Arabic language, which literally comes from the root word rahima, which literally means mercy. So the one who has been virtually encompassed in God's mercy because they're taking the next step in their journey. I mean, they're a little bit ahead of us. Wow, that's beautiful. And the Hebrew word for mercy is rachamim. So that's, that's right. It's really meaningful. And it must be very comforting in a way too. Yeah, that idea of the journey. Oh, absolutely. Naturally, the word death or mortality or graves or cemetery, right? The first thought that comes to our mind is often connotated with something very negative. And it's really, really important for a believer, at least within the Muslim tradition, to understand at the very least that, look, this is a reality that every single one of us are going to experience. And as much as it stresses anyone out, right, there's no way to get out of it, no matter how many people over the centuries have tried to find medicines or mechanisms or freeze themselves or whatever it might be (laughs) to live the immortal life. I think we all have that innate desire. But at the end of the day, if something's a reality, we're well prepared for it. And I think that there's a lot more opportunity for it to be successful. If I don't prepare for my exam and if I just show up there, not going to do so well. But again, because we believe that's a stage or a next step sort of in this life journey of ours, as much as it's something very anxiety inducing, I think that if we're in a state of preparation, it should be okay. (laughs) That is good to hear. I will say you saying that we can't get out of it definitely made me anxious. I mean, of course, (laughs) it's like, yeah, we all all wonder. Behind the smiling face is a lot of anxiety too. Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many of us living in the West in quote unquote modern times. And in a society that is so much guided by science and technology that are like hard at work to solve all of life's mysteries. And in that sense, we're kind of living in a demystified society, except, of course, death remains this veiled thing that we can't actually know or understand as long as we're alive. And so my question is, without the wisdom and guidance of tradition and religion, how do we even have tools at hand to make sense of something as enormous as death. I remember a teacher of mine in the Islamic seminary had said that understanding death or understanding the world beyond this one in the language that we have, even in scripture, is like the language that we would use to employ explaining the color red to someone who's blind. So you can say it's the color of this flower, it's the color of this shirt, it's the color of this or whatever. But at the end of the day, it would be really, really difficult for them to understand what the color red is if they've never been exposed to, if they've never experienced it. We live in a world which is very materialistic, which is very, you know, all about tangible things, right? For us to understand something that is in an unseen realm that none of us have ever experienced, it is really complicated and really difficult. And maybe there's a reason, maybe there's a wisdom behind why we don't get like a little commercial or glimpse into it, right? I don't, I don't, I don't know. Now that I'm not, I'm talking it out, you know, it is very, <laughs> it is very stressful and it doesn't make me very anxious. <laughs> but nonetheless, at least within the Islamic tradition, we address God as Arhamur Rahimin, going back to the same term, which literally means the most merciful of those who show mercy. As a believer, I believe that God virtually had my back when I was in the womb of my mother, and he had my back and supported me in the moment that I was given life on the day of my birth when a whole host of things could have gone wrong and I could not have been alive on that day or in that nine-month process. And then he's helped me over the last 30 plus years and I've continued to live and continue to be healthy and 
filled my life with blessings as many as their challenges and obstacles. I always sort of felt his presence. Why would I think that all of a sudden when I leave that that mercy and that compassion and that love of his is going to cease to exist? That would be a weakness in my faith. But at the same time, like I think it would be a disservice for me to understand my creator that way. That's beautiful. I feel like that was such a revelation. It's true. I don't think we think about that enough. This last year now with with COVID and, and sort of everything that we've experienced, I've attended so many funerals. I say this to so many people. I say this sort of in my sermons quite regularly that, you know, in the summertime here in, in New York City, where we were seeing death every single day in illness for two or three months, and it was horrific, I would just go to sleep every night with dreams of me being drowned in dead bodies because of the amount of wow. funerals that I was attended or the amount of people that I was speaking to. It was, it was a nightmare. But all of that, I think, really helped me understand like the temporal nature of this existence. And also a lot of these points that I'm sharing with you right now that I don't know I would have said these things a year ago. Just because I've seen it so much, I think it is, it is very comforting. It's also incredible to see kind of the resilience of a human being, right? When they've lost someone, that first moment of loss, you feel like you can never get over it. But, you know, time and the sort of divine support really helps, helps us sort of move and recover from that. And I think that all of this puts everything that we do and everything in our life really into perspective, for sure. So powerful. So I believe you're also a chaplain. Is that right? That is right. Yes. What would you say to someone who just lost a loved one to offer comfort? It's tough. So the first things that I would do is go to those textbook answers or those textbook prayers that we often recite kind of within Islamic tradition. We make a statement that's mentioned in the Quran that states, Inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'un, literally translated as, you know, to God we belong and to him is our return. And I think it's very comforting for people, especially, I know we say it very ritualistically amongst Muslims, but it has layers and layers of depth of meaning. To God we belong and to him is our return. This is our journey. We, 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 can't, we can't get away from it and we trust him. Then the second thing I would do is make a prayer for the deceased, the mother, the father, the brother, the sister, the child, whoever was lost you know, to the one who I'm helping through the grieving process, ask God to give them patience. Sometimes we just like to hear others offer us support, even if we don't actually ever expect to take it from them. You know, So when someone says something, especially when it comes from the heart and when it's sincere, like, if you need anything, please don't hesitate to reach out. We say it often so many times, or we write it in emails or in texts or whatever it might be. But I think that if it comes from the heart, it will be received by the heart. And I try my best to truly be sincere and say that if there's anything that I can do for you or your family, like in this time, I'm more than happy to do that. And I, and I really believe that that is my responsibility in the work that I do and in this career and this path that I've chosen. And I really hope that people feel that way. and They feel that they have access to me with that way that they can always feel free to reach out. And I think people appreciate that when we're sincere with them. We're always so scared of getting bad news. I think people are so scared for that moment of shock and horror. So being there for people in that moment is just incredible. I don't know if I could do it. <laughs> it it's tiring, but it's very rewarding. I think. In this day and age, it's so common for people to talk about all kinds of things that would have been kept private once. We have virtually no more taboos. People talk about sex with strangers. They talk about mental illness, anything that might have once been considered shameful, but not really death. It's not so much a part of popular discourse. And it's hard, I think, for people to talk openly about it. And I wondered if there's a way to work that out and sort of 
destigmatize it or reintegrate it into the natural cycle of life so that it doesn't feel quite so scary. I think that when we are really young, our parents and community, society, school, whatever it might be, tries to protect us from even that word. It's seen as something very distant, very far away from us. I have two daughters, five and three, and we've been so careful about utilizing even that word like around them until it hit home. And at the beginning of this COVID experience in March, my wife lost her mother uh, due to COVID, unfortunately. I'm so sorry. Thank you. That particular moment, those first couple of weeks, I remember you know, even my wife trying to be careful about saying that word, but then we'd go to a cemetery and they would ask like, where, you know, why are you guys crying? Or or my daughter would come and ask me that mom said that we're going to go and see our grandmother and like, where is she? You know, things like that. For me, it helped me to understand that question that you're just asking a lot more than I would have, you know, again, a year ago. And I realized that what are we hiding? Why are we hiding this? They have to know and they have to be exposed to it, not in a way where they're going to have nightmares, right? Not in a way whereby they're going to be again in a state of utter and absolute fear. Literally, we just sat them down one day and to the best of our ability, explained it to them. I still think they don't understand completely. But we told them that, you know, your grandmother, like went. she went to like the next stage in her life. She went closer to God. And I recognize also like from reading some parenting articles and so on that were probably very secular and so on, they would speak about, you know, saying, don't talk about religion with your children when someone's passed away. And I, I thought it was interesting and I just deleted the email <laughs> uh, because I didn't feel comfortable with that. I don't see it as such a problem anymore to bring it up, at least with my children. But going back to the question, how do we cultivate this environment whereby we're able to have these conversations openly, that's tough, right? Because no one wants to think about it. No one wants to talk about it. We want to talk about our 401ks. You want to talk about, you know, where you're going to go on vacation when you can travel again, right after COVID. You want to talk about things again, right? We're in such a culture and a community that is all about the physicality of things without any depth to it. And I think that people of faith and people of religion and, you know, like-minded across religious traditions That's a good starting point. I think if we as believers within our respective traditions initiate these conversations within our own communities, I think it has the opportunity to manifest externally. Sort of bleed out. Yeah, hopefully, right? And, you know, I think people of faith, we have a sort of maybe a different sort of code or a different conduct of values or a different appreciation for certain things. And I think that it has the potential to, but that's a tough one. That's a tough one. I don't know how long that's, that one's going to take. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think this pandemic is going to change some attitudes about death or the way we talk about death in sort of even the secular world? My assumption is that when people have time to reflect a year from today, as pop culture also gets caught up in that tide, so people are watching videos or, or, or TV shows that talk about what happened, you know, in the year 2020 with all the death and mortality that we saw I really believe that as much as, you know, TV and, and, and movies and Netflix and whatever is a, often a waste of time or a distraction from that which is most important, you know, in life, once they catch on, people will be more open to also having those conversations when we're seeing it with our eyes. But I'm sure that it's a lot closer to people's minds now than it was, you know, a year ago. I'm certain that it's a lot more real to people than it was yesterday. I wondered if you could give us some homework and tell us if there's something that we can do, that listeners can do to sort of train our souls, our hearts, our minds, and maybe the grieving muscle to sort of be a bit better prepared for dealing with the inevitable. The first thought 
that comes to my mind is this book that I read in the summertime. It's written by C.S. Lewis, A Grief Observer. I'm not sure if any of you have, have read it before. It's by this British scholar, he's a theologian as well, in which he writes this collection of essays after the passing of his wife, who died of a terminal illness, where he was struggling with his convictions and his belief in God, saying, you know, why? And he basically talks about how his faith was really, really weak because he should have had, he should have been okay with the fact that his wife passed away and said, this is what God wants from me. And he kind of writes these collections, again, of personal essays in the beginning where he's talking to God and saying, you know, why did you do this for me? Then after that, he says, you know, but I'm a believer and, you know, why, why, am I, why am I talking to God like this? I'm blaspheming my creator and so on. And I thought it was really, really incredible, right? Because I think that for an individual, it's really easy to talk about loss when we haven't experienced it. It's really easy to say that, you know, they're okay, you know, God is taking care of them. How about the people who have just lost their loved one? who have never been without that person for 50 years and they need to be with them. How difficult is that when you lose a spouse, when you lose a mother, a father, a child, maybe even more challenging, even more difficult. Practically, it's more challenging. Theologically, we can kind of speak about it in forms and kind of dismiss the day-to-day struggles that ensue after someone has passed away. So I thought that this work was really incredible. And when I liken it to a lot of Islamic tradition and a lot of works that we have within at least the Shia Muslim tradition, There's a great deal of literature also available, or even sort of saintly figures within our tradition who kind of navigate this. So the daughter of the Prophet Muhammad within Islamic tradition, particularly within Shi'i tradition, Shia Muslim tradition, is a very revered personality. And after the passing of her father, she's in a state of, you know, real grief. Obviously, we revere the Prophet Muhammad as this incredible man and and so on. But we also hold her as a very saintly sort of a woman. And a lot of people, they struggle with the idea that why is this lady who is so strong and so courageous and so adored and so revered within our tradition, why is she grieving over the loss of you know, her father when she should just be okay with God's decree, so to say? And the, and the response that would give is like, look, there's a balance between the theology and the grief that we feel on a day-to-day basis. You can grieve because you lost someone that you love. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It's normal. It's natural. In fact, to hide those emotions is unnatural. But at the same time, you can also be upset due to the loss, but we're not upset or angry at God. And even that moment, there's an opportunity to navigate it, right? You might ask that question, why now? Why me? But that also an opportunity for us to kind of dive into recognizing God's wisdom. We don't know. And it sort of is very humbling experience as well. So as for homework or readings or this and that, I would say that more than anything, maybe you go on a field trip. When you're a kid, nobody likes to do homework, but we like, we like when you go on a field trip. And to go on a field trip, for instance, to the local cemetery, or if you have any family members or, or, or your community cemetery, wherever it might be, and go ahead and take a look, for instance. And I, I try to do this myself as regularly as I can. I go and I look at those tombstones and I take a look at those dates and I see how many years I I am away from even the oldest person in that grave. So they lived 79 years, they lived 83 years, they lived 101 years. It's not that far, it's not that far away from, from where I am right now anyway. And I think that, again, it really puts things in perspective. And I think that's all we want, right? When we have an approach toward knowing, when we have an approach toward understanding, when things are a little bit more clear, we're that much more inclined to like get like where we need to be. You know, if I'm driving around aimlessly without putting on the navigation in my car, I'm never going to get to my destination or know where I'm going because let's be going around in circles or, you know, whatever. And I think life is very similar. I think that 
those opportunities of reflection, of contemplation, of literally going to a graveyard and seeing that, you know what, that empty plot that's nearby all of these, that might be me tomorrow. That might be my family member tomorrow. That might be someone that I know tomorrow. And all of a sudden, what's more eye-opening than that? What has the opportunity to really speak to the heart more so than being that close to our ultimate abode, so to say? It really has the potential to do a great deal and uh, really, again, change our perspective on things. I think that's really wise advice. Yeah. The idea of like literally going there, like not running from our fears, not running from the like really uncomfortable, heavy feelings of grief and and just letting that in and facing it. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's the hard work, right, of (laughs) being human. Well, I just have one last question. You seem so centered and calm (laughs) and wise about things. So our, our show is called Anxiously, and I'm just curious, what if anything, makes you anxious? Oh my goodness, a lot of things. (laughs) When certain people call me, I get anxious. In fact, when my phone rings, I'm anxious. (laughs) Same. uh, Yeah, my phone is perpetually on do not disturb. I don't (laughs) like when people call me. I'm usually on the phone often, and I'm usually on the phone managing crises. (laughs) Right. That's number one. I think that, uh, what else? What else? A lot of things make me anxious. I think I'm able to put on a good show though. (laughs) I'll tell you what helps me, and that's going out, And again, being in that sort of reflective state, being away from the phone, even for a little bit and going out for walks and even in the freezing cold to look up at the sky. That's comforting to me, especially over the last year or so. Well, thank you so much. This was incredible. Thank you so, so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That was really illuminating. I'm so moved by everything he said. I know. It was so powerful. And I don't like talk to rabbis or people of the cloth every day. So it was so interesting to hear from like a person of deep, deep faith and how that informs every aspect of his life, including death. Yeah. When he spoke about the connection to God that he felt as he thinks about his own birth and, you know, the course of his life, it was just so powerful. You and I are both crying a little bit. There were a lot of, like, trying not to cry on air. (laughs) Did speaking with Sheikh Jaffer make you think about things that you would like to try to do to come to better terms with the idea of death? Yeah, this idea of not running from it so much. You know, I think my grandma, who I was very close to, died about 10 years ago. And I've definitely been to visit her grave a few times. But I think when I'm there, I try to not think about it. You know, like I, I think I tried to kind of keep like a mental distance. But I was thinking about next time when I'm able to go to her graveside, really just like letting myself into those thoughts and then looking at the dates. Like I thought that was so interesting that he talked about the tombstones and being okay with the, the pain of it. How about you? I've been on a path of trying to explore religion, Judaism specifically, really, to just deepen my own knowledge and and really try to deepen my connection to the faith. And I definitely feel inspired and motivated to continue and to go deeper. I would say this whole episode has been very humbling and revelatory in a way. I'm so glad we did this. Me too, even though it was really, really hard (laughs) and uncomfortable. Amy, is there anything you've been doing this week that's making you feel a little less anxious? So I, like you, I know, have been a lifelong huge reader. I love to read. That, That was like my first love and it is something that always sustains me. 
I did find in the start of the pandemic that I was having, and I think a lot of people I know have felt this way, I was having trouble focusing on reading for pleasure. So something I've started doing is just letting myself read whatever I want to read, whether it's rereading an old favorite book, reading something that is just fun genre fiction like that I might have not picked up before, just anything I can to just read on paper, not an ebook, not on my phone. I find that actually really comforting. The other day, I just like sat down on my couch with a book and read. It was an awesome mystery novel, and I felt much calmer afterwards. So it's sometimes hard to find the time to read for pleasure, but I want to make that more of a priority. That's so nice. How about you? What would you recommend to feel a little less anxious? Well, here in New York City, and and I suspect a lot of the Northeast, we've had quite a bit of snow over the last couple of weeks And we have gone out and gone sledding in Riverside Park, which has been super fun. So I would say enjoy the wintry landscape. I think looking at the snow on the tree branches is always relaxing. I love that. Maybe I'll go put on my snow boots now. So after all that, are we feeling less anxious? I think so. Yeah. How about you? Getting there. (laughs) It's a process. Well, as we always say, I know you get it. And we hope you guys listening get it too. See you next time. Anxiously is brought to you by Tablet Studios. Our producers are Josh Cross, Sara Fredman-Ader, and Robert Scaramucci. Our music is by the best band in the world, Low Cut Connie. Please rate and review us on iTunes so more people can find us. It really helps. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at anxiouslypod. And if you have feedback or questions about the show, email us at anxiously at tabletmag.com. For more information about the show, head to tabletmag.com slash anxiously and check out all of Tablet's podcasts at tabletmag.com slash podcasts. See you later.